host, Lindsay Rowland. Today's topic is improving military transition by looking at what can be done to improve the Transition Assistance Program, a DOD-led program that provides training and information to transitioning service members. We welcome the perspective of Matt McDonnell and Annie Alice Matt is an OEF Airborne Infantry veteran and the owner of Next 18 Org. He recently did his thesis on proposed changes to the military TAPS program. Annie Ella is a judge advocate for the Marine Corps Reserves and Senior Director of Legal Affairs and Military Policy for Veterans Education Success. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. To get started, I would like you guys each to take a second and if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Matt, do you want to go first? Sure. So I currently live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I joined the Army in 2011 through the 18X program, which was recruiting potential candidates off the streets with at least an associate's degree to go through basic training as an infantryman, then airborne school, and then you would go through, you would be offered an attempt at selection. I suffered a knee injury going through selection and was sent to Germany. I was attached to the 191 CAV with the 173rd. We deployed to Baraki Barak in Afghanistan 2012-13. In 2015, I was medically retired due to injuries sustained from combat. And, and what are you doing now? When I got out in late 2015, I started a pretty successful lawn and snow company, and I focused on hiring veterans primarily. While I was running the program, I got my MBA, and in mid-2019, I sold my lawn and snow business. I just realized it wasn't fulfilling something intrinsic. It It was a good business. I had really good employees. The model was sound. At the end of the day, something just wasn't clicking for me. I recently started a nonprofit called Next 18, which offers week-long golf camps for disabled veterans and first responders. And each day there's 60 to 90 minutes of mental health and holistic lifestyle resource training. That's basically to better assist both groups with the hurdles they deal with on a daily basis. When I'm not running the camps, I'm currently getting my licensed clinical social work degree so that I can take local vets out one-on-one in a relaxing outdoor environment. We play nine holes. And then I counsel them and talk to them about everything that they're dealing with and give them as many resources and another perspective, kind of just to help them in day-to-day life. And Aniela, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm still in the Marine Corps Reserve as a judge advocate. And I, in my civilian job, in my civilian capacity, I've been a veterans law attorney for going on a decade now, ever since I left active duty and transitioned into the reserves. And as a veterans law attorney, a lot of what I do is helping veterans get their benefits from the government through VA, also through other agencies, but primarily people contact a lawyer when they're having a big problem. I don't ever see the cases that go well because you never call a lawyer when you're not having a problem. You call a lawyer when you're having a big problem. So I see a lot of veterans who have struggled with their transitions in one way or another and maybe ended up in some bad circumstance as a result and are trying to recover from that. And for that reason, perhaps they've decided they're finally going to seek their disability benefits from the VA because they've realized they really do have some problems that they need help with. Sometimes they're seeking employment assistance because they've been unemployed or they haven't been employed in the right ways. And sometimes they're seeking their educational benefits. And I've done a lot of help with people using their, with veterans using their GI Bill and getting effective educations that are going to 
get take them where they want to be. So I've done an enormous amount of work helping veterans one-on-one as a lawyer. And through my work in helping individual veterans, I see trends and patterns of problems that to get them in the circumstance that they're at. And recently in my work in higher education policy with Veterans Education Success and helping individual veterans who are trying to use their GI Bill to get ahead in life after leaving the service, recently I found that an alarming number of veterans were using their GI Bill at schools that probably were not great. Schools that when they graduated from these schools and went to go look for a job, their education was not recognized or Some even said they were laughed out of interviews because they went to schools that just didn't have any credibility. But it's not like the veterans knew that. It's not like they purposely chose schools that were going to get them laughed out of interviews. They just didn't know. And when I started to really look deeper into these issues, it became clear to me that when veterans were making these decisions after they transitioned, such as what school to go to, where to use their benefits, how to use their benefits, they weren't really doing it with all of the information that they should have had available to them. Like what schools are good for veterans to attend and what are the important things to look for in schools? How are you going to position yourself for the career you want? And Because I was seeing so many of those repeating problems, I started to look at where can we really prevent this from happening in the first place? Because basically, when I came into the picture, it was almost like it was too late. They'd used their GI Bill up. They didn't have the college degree that they wanted or needed. They didn't have the career that they had expected. And it's with the GI Bill, once you use it, it's gone. You can't go back and get it again just because you don't like where you went to school. So I started looking at how can we prevent this from happening to begin with, instead of dealing with it on the back end after the GI Bill's already been used up. And I looked at what DOD was doing and how DOD was teaching the education lane of the transition program. And I found that their curriculum was pretty cursory. It wasn't very in-depth. I tried to make some recommendations for them to improve the curriculum to be a little bit more useful practically, and I am still working on that. Anything having to do with trying to get DOD to change something is a slow-moving ship, so that's still in progress. But then I started thinking even deeper how maybe maybe this is a problem that needs to be addressed before transition assistance before they go through TAP, because I actually found out from DOD that with the TAP program, only 25% of the service members who go through TAP choose the education lane. And so 75% are not getting this information about where to use their GI Bill, how to use it effectively, what other programs might be out there to help them. They're completely missing it. But that doesn't necessarily translate to who's using their GI Bill afterwards, because Some statistics indicate that almost all transitioning service members at some point post-transition use their GI Bill, especially the post-9-11, because the benefit is so generous. So that means a vast majority of people who are veterans out there using their GI Bill didn't receive the training in the transition assistance program about how to use their GI Bill and what to look out for and what that really means in setting up your career long-term for success. So then I thought, well, maybe we need to look at pre-transition assistance education and 
getting at service members before they even get to transition assistance, because as a majority of your listeners probably know, the GI Bill is not the only education game in, in the military. There's actually a really great benefit when you're still serving called DOD's tuition assistance program. And that's a program where service members can get tuition assistance for for taking classes while they're still on active duty. And it's a really great program that allows basically service members to get their college degree without even touching their GI Bill. They can save their GI Bill for after service to go to grad school or transfer their GI Bill to their children or to their spouse and just use DOD's money to get through college. But the further I looked into that, there was actually even worse programs in place to make sure that DOD's tuition assistance money was being used at colleges that were providing a good return on investment. And these are ta- this is taxpayer money going to schools that are not providing a good education to the people who are designed to benefit from it. So that's when I started looking really more into what can we as a Department of Defense do better with preparing people for transition. And I started to notice just by looking at the education portion that there are so many opportunities throughout a service member's career cycle that we could be preparing them for transition, but we just don't realize it. We don't realize that, you know, two years into service might be the right time to start thinking about what college you want to graduate from years later. That's when I came across Matt and his work with how the military can improve transition assistance, because I think his ideas were spot on to what I thought would address the root cause of these problems. Well, then I think that's a good segue. Matt, do you want to talk about your thesis and some of the recommendations that you have found for TAPS? Yeah. And I just wanted to point out, it's interesting what Aniela just said about using the tuition assistance while you're in. I actually spent the last 12 to 13 months of my term attached to a WTU, which is a transition unit for injured service members. And when I got into that, I started using the assistance and I was able to get two full semesters of school done. So I went from when I joined the military, having my associate's degree to being about 18 credits short of having my undergrad completed. So when I got out, I immediately just kept going through the schooling without missing even, I think, a month. And I had my undergrad done in about a semester and a half. So that allowed me to save two and a half years of my program, almost three full years to take care of my MBA program. So I see that now. And that's one of the things that I I recommended through my program was taking advantage of it while you're in. I also understand that can be hard. I was attached to an airborne infantry unit and our op tempo was when we weren't deployed, we were in the field or we were training or we were jumping. So the nuances of that, of how to operate inside of a op tempo that is very quick paced is something that needs to be addressed, but that's for a later time. So I started doing my research on my paper and I In the back of my mind, I just kept in mind everything that I watched my unit go through when we came back from Afghanistan in 13. And in my troop alone, I want to say roughly 60% of the guys that got back within 30 to 90 days ETS from our unit. And at the same time, our location in Germany, Schweinfurt, was closing down and the entire company relocated to Grafenbeer. So we had 
leadership at another location. We had service members leaving service, guys ETSing, PCSing. It was very chaotic. And at the same time, guys had to go through TAP. So you had clearing posts, getting orders to go to another location, getting orders to move to another post. And then all of that was going on. And it was, hey, we got to get you into these classes. We got to get TAP going. And I just remember a couple of times where some of the guys would have to go to TAP and they would get a call from someone in the unit higher up than them. Hey, we need to be at the helipad or we got to be at the uh, jump site today because we have to jump and you have to qualify for your airborne pay. And I just thinking to myself, aren't these guys supposed to be focusing on tap and getting out of the military? Why is this relevant? Or they had to be on CQ. So something that was so short term, we weren't looking at the long term picture. So from that, the thing that really stood out to me and one of the first options that I put forth was TAP needs to be put on a TDY status. And every post that I'm aware of has TAP locations. So when I was in Schweinfurt, there was a little building on Schweinfurt's post that everybody that was at Schweinfurt would go to through TAP. And they had civilians come in that took care of all the training. But like I said, you would go to TAP and you would get pulled back and you were still attached to your unit. So your commander could call you and say, hey, get back here. You're on CQ or you need to be in the field today for unit level training. So you would go to think about what that's like going to this training that's going to be supposed to be preparing you for post-military and your leadership calls you in the middle of maybe writing a resume and they tell you, hey, you're on CQ in 20 minutes because someone else can't be there. Now you're losing a three to six hour block of training that is mandated by the DOD and you've been there for maybe 10 minutes. So you attended it. We're going to mark it down as you were here. And that's the course that you get for the rest of your civilian career. You just get that little bit of 20 minute block. They can set it up in a way that there's a a duty NCO at each one of these locations. And for the one to two weeks that the soldier is at TAP, they still have to go through PT, they still have to do whatever's necessary for the daily routine, but between the hours of X and Y, TAP is their focus. They won't be bothered by their command because they've been put on TDY status. And because they're still on post, there's no need to pay them the TDY, the per diem or anything like that. They can still go home at lunch. They can go home at night. They don't need any special billeting. So this, and I know the military loves low or no cost, this alleviates that problem right off the bat. The other option that I put forth was, and this is a little bit more of a long-term plan, every officer that goes through the military that intends to be in for a certain period of time has to go through Bullock, which is basic officer leadership course. More often than not, this is a TDY and you're sent to a, a central location, depending where you, if you're CONUS. But with this, I believe the program's roughly 24 weeks long. Now we have all of these officers. Every officer that's an O2 is in this program, every single one. And it's a requirement to go to O3. So if we take all of these officers, they're already here. They're already on TDY. They're already in billeting. They're already getting per diem. We find a way to incorporate even two days of the curriculum to teaching them about the benefits of taking care of their soldiers long-term and teach them how to enroll their soldiers in the class while the op tempo is low so that 
the soldiers can start taking one or two classes when when maybe the next six months is going to be pretty quiet for them. And even if it's just one class, teaching them how to enroll, then they get to experience what it's like to be in class. They start building a rapport with their classmates. Maybe they even identify, hey, this school isn't for me, but you know what? I didn't waste my GI Bill because I'm using tuition assistance right now so that when I get out, I still have my four years of my GI Bill. So we're saving them those six months and and the cost. And ultimately, it's going to take time, but you end up kind of teaching a new generation of officers. It's important to take care of your soldiers. This is how you do it. You take care of them and you want them to be there for you while they're, they're underneath you. This is how you take care of them long-term. You set them up for success. And at the end of the day, it potentially just lowers one of the barriers that they have when they get out. And with the program, I mentioned that there could be a way that this could potentially count as promotion points down the road. Some type of system where we perform a census of their units at the time when they were 03, when they were in a troop level command position. It could be a a census that's sent out maybe after three, five years, whatever that looks like to satisfy some need. And it's anonymous and the soldier, now a veteran, is able to go back and maybe there's five questions. Did your commander do this? Did he show you how to do this? Do you think he truly cared to take care of you? And maybe it's only worth a handful of promotion points, but when other officers see other officers get promoted because of those few extra points, they start realizing we need to really take this important and we need to put the onus on maybe taking care of our soldiers long-term. Okay, so I want to go back. I have a lot of questions, but I want to go back to the second recommendation, which would be to teach uh, new officers, newly minted officers, how to take care of soldiers. And just, I just wanted to say on that, I think that you will agree with me on this. The idea and what it means to take care of soldiers, I feel has changed since like maybe you or I got in. Whereas like it may have been before, like making sure they have chow or making sure they're okay with their family or these things. But now it is like encompasses like their lives afterwards, their education, then becoming better soldiers. So I think that one, that the idea of what taking care of soldiers has changed. So to educate a new generation of soldiers, what we would like that to look like today, I think is key. The other thing I wanted to mention was also, I believe that like when officers leave the military, they automatically are farther ahead than enlisted by the fact that they have college already or that they've experienced it and they at least know that they want to engage in college or they don't. So I think it's important to remind them that a lot of times soldiers will leave the service and they don't have that education to back them up or they don't have that degree ready or they don't have the skills of what it's like to sit in a classroom and get a degree. So I think that is another very important factor. And then on to your third, I, I like the idea but how would you define and what would be the measures you would define transition success if you were to evaluate an officer? I think the biggest thing at the end of the day is I knew when I got out of the military, there were going to be hurdles. There were preconceived notions of what it's like to be a veteran when you get out, what it's going to be like leaving the confines of your unit and going off into the world and you no longer had your team with you. And I think at the end of the day, success is defined by not the immediacy, but the long-term effects of each individual service member and their transition and the outcome of what ends up happening for them in life. And I know that's 
you're saying this thing, but you're also trying to define what it's like short term. But in reality, it is a long-term thing because at the end of the day, you're looking out decades because the immediacy of getting out of the military, if we can limit hurdles, that's going to have a lifelong effect on the service member. So for me, I would say the most important thing is while they're still in, having as many resources as possible, doing as much as we can in the confines of the normal operational tempo of a unit to lower as many of those hurdles as possible. So it's almost a loaded question. It's hard to answer it because like at the right, when you get out, the first thing you want to do is get as far away from the military as possible. And you could potentially go down a route where you're not paying attention to stuff. And before you know, it's been six months and you're out and you haven't even gone to the VA and registered. So yeah, it's a loaded question, but at the end of the day, the, the concern for me is as much attention as can be put before the service member gets out and before they're away from leadership and people that at the time can say, Hey, you need to do this. Like I'm telling you, you have to do this because once they go out into the wild, no one's telling them what to do. Aniella, what are your thoughts on this? I think for a successful transition that there is at least a bare minimum and the bare minimum that I think is necessary for a successful transition is at least knowing what resources are available to you and how to use them. I can't tell you how many veterans I talk to that don't even know the basics of where to turn to get help. And there is a tremendous amount of assistance for veterans now, especially during what people consider the transition phase. And the fact that they don't even know where to begin is problematic to me because you should at least know what's out there and how to use it. I'll tell you, this week I'm meeting with a veteran who left the Army in the late 1980s. He's never enrolled for VA healthcare. I'm helping him enroll for VA healthcare. He's gone this long without access to VA healthcare. And do you know what he said to me? I just didn't know how to do it. And when I went to the VA, they told me I made too much money. And so I just didn't sign up. So when I continue to see veterans like that, I'm and I'm just one person, there's hundreds of thousands of them out there in the same circumstance that don't even know, you know, the basics about what to do. Granted, this veteran did not go through transition assistance. He's an older veteran who didn't have that benefit, but I see them from all eras. And I experienced it myself because I've gone on and off active duty myself also. And so I've gone through this process a couple of times of transitioning off active duty, yet there were very few resources that were proactively provided to me in that process. Luckily for me, I am a lawyer. I already had a law practice. It wasn't as necessary for me, but as I'm going through this, I'm like, hey, you know, no one's actually going the extra mile or actually extra inch to give me any information here. It's all, it was all sort of incumbent on me. And the last time I transitioned off of active duty was in 2019. So, I mean, that's pretty recently. So there's still something missing. And The missing is really understanding what's available to you afterwards. And there, like I said, there's so much that there's really no excuse for it. But I also wanted to comment on the responsibility of the military now to take a lot more ownership for how successful people are outside their military careers. And I think that the reason the reason that has become more important than it was in the past is because we have seen what not doing that 
has resulted in. We have extremely high suicide rates. For a period of time, we had exceptionally high unemployment rates. Luckily, those have declined, but those declined through making these tremendous efforts. So the success that we see now in veteran employment, in veteran career success, in veterans succeeding in college are because we made that change mentality in the military and in the transition process to really take more ownership of this. And I know as an officer myself that I feel a real sense of responsibility to my subordinates, that I make sure that they are going to succeed in the long term. I have helped several that my own Marines find jobs. I have done gone way out of my way to help them years after they leave the military, because that's what we do. That's still my responsibility as a leader to make sure that I continue to help them any way that I can. And that's our responsibility to each other, and really the responsibility of the government as well. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. I definitely think that is a huge responsibility. I do want to point out, though, this part, though, is that I feel like, and this is like me putting my commander hat on, but um, just remembering that as a commander, there were just so many things on my plate all the time, you know, mission essential tasks or training or med pros or the latest incident. And I just think that we're really quick in cases of like suicide and mental health and sexual assault, like we're very quick to say commanders need to do this and this. But I also think that there has to be a look at like what we can take off commander's plates if we are going to start prioritizing these new priorities, because if everything's a priority, then that's how soldiers slip through the cracks. And that's how we're not able to prioritize transition or even like the small thing, like you talked about is that TAPS class, like commanders feel that there's something else more important. They can pull the soldier from the class and as small as and short as that class is, the soldier needs to be there for it. So I just want to throw out that while we're looking at this issue that I think that especially during garrison times and deployments are not as heavy right now that we do start to prioritize and give commanders the space to prioritize education and to allow soldiers to go to these classes. Matt, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with what you're saying. And again, coming from the 173rd, I I know all too well what a crazy op tempo can be. The one thing that I think is often overlooked when we talk about TAP is from doing the research that I did for this paper. TAP is meant to be initiated 18 to 24 months from ETS. With my deployment, many of my fellow teammates were doing it two months out. So yes, that becomes an issue when you're trying to deal with CQ and ETSing and PCSing and clearing posts and everything. But if you're proactive, like a good leader, and you know that TAP can be done 18 to 24 months out, there should be no reason. Maybe schedule in 18 to 24 months out. I don't exactly know what an officer, what it looks like as far as seeing a battle plan for six, 12 months out, but you should be able to see, okay, I know these guys are in my command and they're going to be ETSing X amount of time plan, start planning. If you plan this out far enough, you can completely take this off your plate and not have to worry about it. Or for sergeants, XOs, platoon sergeants, this can be a task that one simple thing that they're just looking at. If you're getting the soldier into TAP 18 months out, now they have a year and a half to start planning instead of last minute scurrying around with their heads chopped off. 
Yeah. When you said that, I didn't realize that I, I always thought of tap as a course. We have to hurry up and get everybody through in the last week before they start to clear or turn their CIF in. So, or we have to get this done before they can start clearing because someone's going to be mad at us, you know, and sign the soldier's paperwork and, you know, just kind of move them along. So yeah, that, that was, this is what I really go ahead and what I really appreciate about Matt's other recommendation that officers receive at least an abbreviated TAP curriculum when they're going through the basic officers course. Because then if they are thinking about these issues from day one, that this is one of my responsibilities as a leader to make sure that my Marines and soldiers have a successful transition, that I put them out into the world better than when they came in. And these are some of the things that I need to keep in mind. How are they going to use tuition assistance? Are they going to use tuition assistance? You know, am I making sure that they're healthy, that they're educated, that they're set up well for a career later, then that doesn't become just another checklist item. It just becomes ingrained into their leadership style and their leadership and their what they're responsible for as leaders. So I think that getting the information to young leaders early so that at least it's a ongoing element of their leadership, reminding them when they go through their professional military education journey. So maybe once again, when they're in the Marine Corps, we go to expeditionary warfare school, then command and staff college, and then the war college. As officers proceed through their professional military education, that this is a continuing reminder. What are you doing as a leader to make sure that you know, you're taking care of your Marines and your soldiers? So I think that's an easy solution. I think it's probably wouldn't cost anything. I think that it would be a something that would take time to for us to see results from because of course these would be young leaders just receiving this information now and then it would take years to really see the long-term outcomes. But I think it's consistent with what the military expects of its leaders now and what America expects of the military now. Yeah. And another thing too, I think to think about long-term is also, we don't seem to have an issue getting, giving officers the, the chance to be educated as far as like going to graduate schools or getting their degrees. And actually it's a PCS duty station assignment. And that's what their job is to go to school. We don't seem to have a problem, you know, sending officers a way to get their master's degrees. And that's like a lot of time for them, but we don't do that for the enlisted. So it's like, we're setting, you know, you officers, you guys are going to be great. You're going to come out with a master's degree. You're going to have a master's degree from the army or war college or the work in, you know, all these things are set up for them, but then enlisted, we're just like, Hey, you know, you can try to get your education if you want to do a couple classes here and there. So I also think that like, that's something to think about, like how we are setting up officers with, with civilian education and, and degrees, whereas, you know, you kind of have to figure it out yourself when you're enlisted. So I wanted to ask you, Matt, did you, I wanted to ask you first why you chose this as your topic for your thesis. And then also we didn't talk about your transition. Could you just shed a little light on how your transition was? So I chose the topic that I did because at the time, I, as I stated earlier, I, I just remember when I was getting back from deployment, all of the chaos that was going on with everyone, with guys trying to get checked out for the medical injuries that we had and everyone ETSing and our unit moving to another location. And it was almost more chaos than deployment at times because half of our, from our troop alone, half of our troop was two and a half hours away, half was going, or a third was going through this program. And I just remember how chaotic it was. And there were 
a few of my leaders, mainly squad leaders and a couple of the platoon sergeants that could tell things were a little hectic and they just kind of wanted to go out of their way. And I remember one of them mentioning to me at the time, like, you got to do this stuff because it's important. When you get out, it doesn't matter what you did. You're going to need to know how to navigate the education. You're going to need to know how to take care of getting a disability rating. You're going to need to do all these things because you're going to get out of the military in your mid thirties and have the next 50 years of your life to take care of. So while I was only in the military for just under five years, I've already been a veteran that long and I'm 37. And I knew that it was important. And I just remember out of all the things that I went through in the military, one of the things that stood out the most was the TAP program. I leaned into TAP. I leaned into it very heavily. I attended Boots to Business while I was in. When I got out from Boots to Business, I went to EBV, Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Vets. That was, it's nationwide, but I ended up getting selected as one of the first cohorts to go to St. Joe's for, I believe, 20 disabled veterans went to this program. And the level of training that I got from Fortune 500 companies, CEOs, veterans that had gotten out and were extremely successful and had franchises all across the country, and just people that genuinely wanted to help and see veterans succeed, and subsequently other courses as my business grew, finishing my bachelor's degree, getting my MBA, now getting another master's degree, and then hearing every other person that I talked to tell me, oh, I didn't even know this existed, or oh, I didn't even know I could do this. And I thought to myself, most of that stems from the chaos that I saw when we got back and guys getting pulled out of tap because they needed to sit on CQ for 12 hours because that was more important. And I said, there's a lot of different things that I could write this on, but if you set the soldier up for success while they're in, I feel like that would have had the biggest impact. So then I started doing the research. And when I started doing the research, it was yeah, I, I definitely picked the right avenue because the numbers that were being presented to me, the, the data that I was reading, it, it was mind-blowing. I always heard, oh, X amount of soldiers use their GI Bill when they get out, and that number was low. But when I really started diving into the, the data that's put out by these organizations that it, their sole job in the government is to track these trends, like it was startling and it was kind of embarrassing. So that for me was why I chose to write it. And then your second question was about my, my transition. So by all accounts, I would say I had what would be deemed a successful transition. I had a spouse, a great marriage when I got out. I knew what I was going to do. I spent 12 months in the WTU finishing part of my schooling. I, I had the plan with my business partner. We were going to start this company. I was doing everything right. And when I got out, I, I bought a house. I used my the VA home loan. I was using my education benefits. I was running a successful business. So on paper, everything looked great. I ran into a, a hurdle with the VA and I won't really get into it too much, but there was just some mismanagement of meds that I came off from deployment and it did not go well. I had to sell my business. My marriage is no longer, but at the end of the day, I was resilient enough to get through everything, to overcome what had happened. And it taught me and it kind of opened my eyes and it was like, yep, 
this is what I need to do. This, I, this is why I'm getting into the mental health with the vets and, and first responders. I, I know firsthand what it can be like when you're going through that. So at the end of the day, hurdles that shouldn't have been there were there, but I was able to lean on a lot of the resiliency that I learned in the military to get through that. And ultimately I'm in a better place now. And that's the roundabout story of five short years being out of the military. Thank you for sharing that. Do you plan to take some of these recommendations to Congress or do you have plans for this thesis or? I am at the beck and call of Aniela. She reached out to me about, man, what was it? January of 2020 and mentioned that she had read what I had written and there were some things that stood out. And at one point, early March, I think we had been in talks about coming out and talking to some members of Congress and doing the rounds and going through that. And then the world fell apart. And fortunately, Aniela and I have stayed in touch over the last 15 months now. And we've really developed a good relationship. We've talked about other avenues and other issues that vets are facing. And now she's one of my board members. So Oh, I didn't know that. That's exciting. Congratulations, Aniela. At the end of the day, I see that she is very heavily focused on veterans education benefits. And and while I'm doing something a little bit different with my nonprofit, this is still a really important subject to me. And wherever she needs me, I will go. I will follow her. I really think that these are recommendations that Congress needs to consider. I think these are Number one, they're easy fixes. They are not complicated to implement at all. It's just improving upon what already exists and using the existing structure that is in place. Two, I don't think it's going to cost any money at all for Congress and DOD to implement. And three, I think we'll see real results from it. I, like I said earlier, it, while it will probably take time to see these tangible results because it's really changing a mindset of leaders. When you look at it from the 100,000 foot view, it's it will take time. However, it's exactly what we want to happen. It's exactly the type of improvement in the process that we want. And frankly, there have been, I don't know how many changes to the TAP program over the last 10 years. I can't, so many that I can't count. They're constant, Congress is always tweaking, improving, changing, adding to the TAP. But really, transition is not a TAP class. Transition is your life is changing, and that is a process, not a week. And if we start from the beginning and continue on until somebody is successfully transitioned into a stable future, that's the transition, not just a week. And this is exactly the type of solutions that will get us there. Yeah, I totally agree. I think these are very feasible. I think they're very realistic. And I do, I think they can have a huge impact if implemented correctly. Before we go, I wanted to thank you both for being here. And Matt, I wanted to thank you for sharing your thesis with us and those recommendations, as well as Aniela, the issues that you've seen with military transition. Did you, either one of you, have any last minute thoughts before we leave? I would like to say that if there's anybody out there listening who has ideas on improving transition, share them. These ideas came about because Matt saw a problem and he actually went through the effort of trying to address it. And there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of good ideas out there that people have. We just never hear them. And 
you shouldn't be shy about trying to improve the military. You shouldn't be shy about trying to improve veterans issues or anything else. Talk to Congress, share your ideas, talk to people who are active in the arena. You will have allies is if you seek them out, because this is an issue that's important and this is where the ideas come from. I agree. And I think another thing that's really important is, like I said earlier, when we get out, we all go to all different corners of the world and we lose those connections with the people that we were with. And if we know when we're getting out that we're probably not getting the necessary resources that we need, you're your own best advocate, whether that's for what goes on at the VA or your education benefits or any of the other hurdles in life that you're going to face. If you really want something to change, you have to put the effort in. I wrote this thesis for a grade in a class. I didn't think anyone would ever see it because it's a small college in Milwaukee and it found its way to an Agnella and it could one day be picked up by the Department of Defense. So advocate, speak up, If you see something that needs to be fixed, come up with a plan, make sure that it works and put it out somewhere. I like that. All right. Well, thank you both for being here today. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you for joining us today. Please take a second and find us on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest episodes. Have a show idea or want to be interviewed? Please email me at podcastcarryon at gmail.com. We will see you next time. Thank you. 